Sometimes when you're driving down the road all by yourself, you begin to hear a voice that tells you you need to look around, pay attention. Maybe something isn't quite right. That voice is me. It's the voice of Gord. Welcome to another episode of Voice of Gord. Bit of a bit of a bit of a some, something of an emergency broadcast here. A situation developing in Canada. Many of you know I was a supporter of and rode on and followed the Freedom Convoy, went to Ottawa, and I've also been um, raising alarm bells about the treatment of political prisoners in Canada in my writings and in my podcasts. One of the figures somewhat central to all this is a fellow named Jeremy McKenzie. And people working with him made a request to the Canadian government a long time ago um, for documents under something called FOIPOP, which is Freedom of Information and Protection of Privacy. It's, It's the Canadian equivalent of a FOIA request, Freedom of Information Act. And documents were released showing... Uh, extreme malfeasance on the part of the Canadian federal government, um, incompetence, uh, lies, and just unbelievable um, just dropping of the ball on the part of the RCMP, CSIS, the media, in relying on this activist group called the Canadian Anti-Hate Network, it seems quite likely that uh, a major component of Trudeau's rationale for invoking the Emergency Measures Act was based on a pack of lies. And, like, this is serious business. Um, my interview today is with a lawyer from Toronto named Karim Assad, and she and another woman have put together this sort of expose, a summary of what they've found in the initial examination of these documents. And it's not looking good for the Canadian government. In this show, this interview, I want I want my friends in the American media and anybody down south listening to this podcast to understand something. If you thought shit in Canada was bad before, it is much, much worse. And because the Canadian media and government being what it is and what they are and how they function in 2023, we may never see any accountability for what went on. And you guys have a problem with the nincompoops running the show along your northern border. And I mean, this stuff comes right into the five eyes, but all of this will come out in the conversation. I just wanted everyone to know the sort of serious nature of this. Like I'm, it's, it's incredible to me what's going on and more noise needs to be made about it. And I'm happy to contribute to that. And I want people to listen very intently to what Karima has to say. And then I want you to go and check out the links I'm going to share in the show notes, uh, which provide the FOIPOP documents and her analysis and summary of them. And then um, go from there we have to hold these people to account. I don't know how it's going to happen in Canada. Maybe we can get political pressure and some shaming going on from south of the border, 
But, you know, uh, please listen to this. Share it widely. If you know anybody uh, connected in higher reaches of the American media, pass it along to them. Like, this is a serious, serious problem going on in Canada. Soviet, like, Stasi-level nonsense, political prisoners, interference with uh, traditional methods of investigation, witch hunts, scapegoating, like, the whole thing is disgusting, and something needs to be done about it. And the first step towards addressing a problem is admitting we have one. And my guest today describes for you exactly what that problem is and what went on. All right. Um, without any further delay, uh, please welcome to the show, Karima Saad. All right. G'day, everybody. Uh, welcome to another episode of Voice of Gord. I'm Gord, and this is my voice. Bit of a, I wouldn't call it an emergency episode, but uh, very timely. Got a fast-moving story going on back home in Canada. Has some pretty serious ramifications for uh, various people I've spoken with before on this show and their families with relation to uh, political prisoners in Canada and um, the administration of Justin Trudeau, who, as many of you know, is my nemesis. I'm bringing you today a uh, lawyer and activist, I think, from Toronto by the name of uh, Karima Saad, who has released this incredible expose, uh, 85 pages worth of it, documenting some pretty major incompetence, lies, and malfeasance going on back home in Canada with the RCMP, CSIS, the federal government, and... Uh, a very well-financed activist group by the name of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network, who uh, may have been a key player in the bogus invocation of the Emergencies Act, which was used to crush the Freedom Convoy. Uh, Miss Saad, welcome to Voice of Gord. Thank you for having me. Uh, did anything I say in that intro sound incorrect to you? I don't want to overstate the role of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network in the invocation of the Emergencies Act. Um, so uh, certainly, um, if we look at the reasoning and rationale for why it was put in place, there were a number of different things. There's no singular reason. So I just, I would add that caveat. Um, right. But, they, 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 yeah. they were a component, though. I, 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 I would say so, just based on how frequently they were cited by news media sources and then law enforcement and then media and law enforcement kind of in this feedback loop where they were repeating each other's statements um, and kind of bolstering it as it went. But it was still the origin of that information or disinformation or misinformation uh, was the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. Right. All right. So before we get into that, um, introduce yourself to my audience and anybody who doesn't know who you are. Give us a little background. My name's Karima. Um, I am a lawyer based in Toronto, um, and I sort of fell into journalism and investigative journalism over the past three years. Um, kind of pre-COVID, my practice was mostly housing based, dealing with landlords and tenants um, and cannabis, which is 
legal in Canada. Um, and then when the pandemic hit, I I started documenting rallies and parades that were happening in my neighborhood um, and across Ontario. And kind of my perspective and positionality on that um, has been a journey for sure. Uh, I started off very fly on the wall, like not causing anyone any issues and just documenting what I saw. Um, and at a certain point, I stepped on some toes um, and kind of it became a bit of an adversarial relationship. Um, I I was there for the most of the convoy, like 95% of uh, kind of from the day the trucks arrived until... In uh, Ottawa? In Ottawa, yeah. Um, until the red zone really got locked down and it was unsafe to be there. Um, and then, you know, the past couple of years have been interesting because um, there have emerged counter-protests, anti-convoy protests. I've covered those as well, and they see me as an adversary as well. Um, so the fact that, you know, my style is a little bit satirical at times, um, but I, I strive for accuracy and honesty in what I portray, um, and that doesn't sit well with people who don't like themselves as they are reflected in my footage. Um, so I have <laughs> uh, enemies across the political spectrum, but also supporters. Um, so it's an interesting kind of in a world of echo chambers and polarization. I'm blessed and cursed to not have a home, if that makes sense. Oh, it makes total sense to me. Um, my sort of journey with the Freedom Convoy has some analogs to yours. I went to Ottawa as well. Uh, the first weekend, the convoy uh, came to town. I've been a trucker my whole life. I have 26 years of experience on the road across Canada, the United States, Australia, and New Zealand. Did four seasons up on the ice, spent a lot of time in Western Canada, drove road trains in Australia. Uh, been there, done that is a t-shirt I've worn, uh, wore out, thrown out, bought new ones, and kept on trucking. So uh, when the Freedom Convoy came along, uh, given the mass psychological warfare engaged on the citizens by government in Canada and the rest of the world, I thought it behooved me to go home and express solidarity with the boys um, uh, pr protesting uh, Justin Trudeau and his uh, venal and vindictive regime. Uh, I spent the first weekend there, came home, uh, posted a whole bunch of live videos on Twitter I'd already been sort of writing on the convoy and um, some folks noticed my videos and my commentary and asked me to write more expansive stuff, including Newsweek magazine, uh, Unheard in the UK. I, I went on GB News in the UK and then a couple of weeks into it, I got invited on Fox because of my writing at Newsweek. And then 36 hours after my appearance on Fox News, my Twitter account was suspended. One of my best friends texted me and told me never to talk to her again. No questions, no debate, no, hey, why did you, how'd you end up in Newsweek? How'd you end up on Fox? Why do you think of these things? No debate, just get lost. So I, I feel you on that. And then in the aftermath of my writing, I would, I had two major groups that would ask me to comment on things and give my opinion. 
um, the very far left, like legit Marxists, theorists, um, people who really are uh, interested in class politics, and then American libertarians who basically hate all government all the time. So, uh, but everybody in the middle ignored me. I was supposed to go on NPR and then that got canceled, I think, when they found out that I wasn't going to tell them what they wanted to know. So that's sort of why I went. I'm curious to know uh, what 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 uh, uh, behooved you to go to Ottawa and cover the Freedom Convoy as you did. So at that point, um, I had already been documenting the movement and different groups or subsets or personalities within it um, for about a year at that point. Um, so it kind of, it was in my wheelhouse and circumstances were such that um, at the time I was living in Perth, Ontario, um, which is just a few hours away from Ottawa compared to Toronto. Um, I was there ironically because of a harassment campaign that pushed me to just get away for a season. So I like ended my lease and do you care to, do you, do you care to discuss that harassment and who is harassing you and why? Sure. Um, I, we can circle back to it or I can explain it now. Um, I, I'll explain it now. Basically the turning point for me um, was July of 2021 where I tried hosting a comedy show that would have featured an interview with Chris Guy. Um, and if you're not familiar with Chris Guy, oh, I know he, Chris Guy. Oh, yes. Right. So he's sort of a loudmouth. Um, we had sparred a little bit online because I published a cartoon of him that he didn't like. And then he sort of set his hundreds of thousands of followers to brigade my accounts and my business Google reviews and all of that. And I just kept making comics. Um, so we were in this sort of back and forth, uh, kind of almost like I'm a huge wrestling fan. So it was akin to that, um, like a, a feud that was happening online. Um, so I invited him to like, let's meet face to face and you can answer some of my questions. Um, and unbeknownst to me, um, there was a local group of people who decided that I wasn't allowed to talk to Chris Guy. Uh, I wasn't allowed to quote unquote platform him that, you know, it, it, very irrational statements about bringing danger into a marginalized community, which is where I happened to work and live at the time. Um, and so they blockaded my event. And, you know, that. Up to that point, I think there wasn't really much question that my politics, you know, tend to be left leaning. Um, and th that's like the the slant through which I, I was seeing the world. Um, and all of a sudden I was characterized as being far right, um, you know, a vehicle for white supremacy, just things that didn't match. Thought reality. terminating cliches. You got it. hundred um, percent. Very lazy thinking. It was a smear campaign, essentially. Um, and it resulted in real world harassment. Um, and kind of a turning point for me was a stranger approaching me in a park saying, we know where you live. Um, and at the time, it just 
I didn't know what to make of it. And so I decided to cut loose for the winter, um, see if things would cool down. It was um, very stressful um, being canceled. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I guess it sounds like you've had um, a little bit of a taste of that as well. Um, and yeah, I've, I've been kicked off Twitter three times um, and twice pretty much verifiably by uh, Canadian spooks chasing me around um, under the employ of the prime minister. But that's another story. I've, I've managed to not uh, be booted off of Twitter, but in sort of the real world, I anyway, long story short, I ended up in Perth um, by fluke. And when I heard that there was going to be some kind of event in Ottawa, um, you know, I decided we'd go check it out. Um, I, and I didn't expect it to be more than a weekend. Um, and then it just kept going. <laughs> and because I didn't have, you know, I, I was able to rearrange myself and just stay in Ottawa um, for the duration of it. So it, it was, it's sort of ironic that this harassment campaign where they were trying to silence me um, ended up being a huge part of how I, I really like doubled down my involvement in, in documenting. Re documenting reality. I, that's what it is. And, and the way that I think we all see reality, um, it differs, right? And, and everything is a matter of perception. Um, so, you know, I, I was able to see and experience different aspects of the convoy um, and convey that to just not a specific audience, like the Twitter universe, I suppose. Um, but there weren't a lot of people doing it the way that I was. Um, and so the, the, the rest is basically history from there. Um, I, I've just continued doing it. I find it very interesting. And, you know, the, the notion of people not being allowed to talk to one another, um, it troubles me a great deal. Uh, I think that once we shut that down, there's no, there's no option, but to continue in diverging paths. Right. And, and it, that's just not how societies work. So I am really resistant. Well, if, if, you, if, you, if you want them to work, there has to be discussion and there has to be people uh, willing to engage others. I hear you, darling. I, I've had family that have stopped talking to me entirely in the last two years. And all I did was go to the freedom convoy, report what I saw and defend my fellow truckers and defend the idea of bodily autonomy and, uh, and criticize the handling of our country under Trudeau's COVID regime. And that now marks me as some kind of fascist, mm -hmm. even though, you know, under the doctrinaire fascism, one of the pillars of OG Mussolini type fascism is the government and corporations working together to manage society with little to no democratic input. Um, I think that is kind of exactly how COVID went down, isn't it? It's a very loaded term fascism. So oh, you're yeah. correct in that aspect of, I'm definition. being I'm being rhetorical here because the yeah. people that cry fascism all the time have been staring it in the face and have said nothing. It, it's uh, or I mean, they've been staring corporatism in the face. It's a variation of it. 
And that's like, that's undemocratic. And, you know, if we are honest about our system in Canada, it leaves a lot to be desired, just as far as who is in the class of politicians, it's quite rare for people to break into it. Um, And if they do, there's a lot of compromises that need to be made. Um, Quite often, those folks don't last too long. Um, You know, if you don't buy into kind of the party line, right? So I think party politics um, is a huge barrier to actual representative democracy. Um, You know, as, as far as the purpose of the the convoy um my experience on the ground was that people were there for different reasons and because it was kind of a a hodgepodge and uh, folks were motivated kind of based on their personal circumstances or their understanding of what was happening there wasn't a whole lot of cohesion of messaging or or purpose um and you know that that made it possible um, for things to be misrepresented. From what I understand of my investigations into the sort of organization that arose in Ottawa, right? So like, you know, back up a minute, the Freedom Convoy was basically organized within weeks across social media. It was very spontaneous, very decentralized. Um, I wrote an article for Newsweek, Uh, examining why the Canadian labor movement, like unions, private, public, didn't matter, all cast aspersions on the convoy. And I think that's partly because they weren't involved and couldn't either, couldn't claim or take any credit for it. I mean, over and above the fact unions now are sort of a professionally managed thing where the people running them aren't drawn from the shop floor anymore. But that's another question. But like the, the, leadership such as it was in Ottawa, you know, it took a little while, like, you know, you're, you're saying that there was a hodgepodge of grievances and there was among any, among many people, right? Cause when you have a, a, a humongous group of people, there's going to be tons of different grievances. That's part for the course. But like, once this sort of leadership coalesced, you know, this BJ Dichter guy, like went on Peterson's podcast and said, we have two demands end of the vaccine mandates and an end to the arrive can app. And like Trudeau, please come talk to us. And that was ignored. And a bunch of other stuff that the sort of like, you know, um, nascent leadership in Ottawa was also ignored, you know, because they, a lot of antagonists to the Freedom Convoy kept bringing up this Pat King character and this memorandum of understanding. But like that was all dispensed with early on. Like Marazzo said the MOU, like they were had nothing to do with it. That was like some other people. And they told Pat King to get lost early on that he wasn't being very helpful. But like anybody you talk to whilst the convoy was in session, kept bringing these two things up just to like dismiss any other concerns people had. Right. Like, did you find that when you were talking to folks? Well, because there was it, it was like it spread through social media, right? And so it touched on different groups that were pre-existing. And so a bunch of different groups kind of latched onto it and said, well, we're going to capitalize on this. Um, And so that's what happened. Um, And so there was no real 
authority per se, right? They, they had the press conferences with Tamara Leach and kind of their, their trial is ongoing right now as we oh, speak. Oh yeah, yeah I'm, I'm paying attention. So their ability to gatekeep, I think was very limited. Um, so even to say, well, you know, we reject the MOU, that didn't mean those people went away, right? They were still there. They were still seeking whatever opportunities they could to speak to media, um, you know, promote their own live streams and agendas. Um, so it, it wasn't really feasible, I don't think, to um, to cut those people who may have, you know, tainted or been seen as undesirable out. And, and BJ Dichter... Um, I don't know a ton about him. Um, some of the feedback that I got is he kind of parachuted in and was doing media relations. Um, he was obviously all over American news, but his connection was somewhat tenuous. Um, so there were internal power battles and struggles that I am only privy to the smallest fraction of it yeah i've i've heard this, circles. I've, I've heard the same thing i'm and i don't I'm, know I'm, any of these people and now having been the subject of smear campaigns um i'm so reluctant to kind of pass judgments based on snippets of what i've heard about people online right um, yeah but, likewise i've tried to stay out of all this drama too and i'm trying very hard to stay out of some other stuff going on like i say I'm just a commentator. I live south of the border now, but I'm trying to do my level best to mm -hmm. assist with this movement such as it is because, you know, the crimes of the Trudeau administration and what's going on with the, our political prisoners, you know, it's all I'm trying to do is help with that. I can't, I can't speak to like convoy organizer drama. I've tried to stay very far away from that. Yeah. It, it uh, and it's not really my interest either. Like what, grabs my attention is like literally the people on the street and you know a whole range of interesting characters i would say um some recurring and and that was what what kept me there just seeing what would happen from day to day um and watching sort of this infrastructure appear where you know people were they had little kitchens and kind of the, there was a city within a city um, and I also was privy to people who reside in Ottawa normally and, you know, took a lot of issue with the way that the convoy unfolded, um, you know, some of the the manifestations of protest, if we put it that way, um, who felt unsafe, who felt that it was... Uh, unduly burdensome feeling um, unsafe and actually being unsafe are two different things this is true um and, and you know there's um in in law we have like different like there's an objective versus subjective understanding of fear for example and subjective is what you actually feel and whether or not that is based on an objective threat is a separate issue altogether and where you have both that coalesce you know then we're really talking can, can i ask you a question that might be a little bit spicy as it were about this subjective feeling of fear sure uh it's more of a i guess it's rhetorical and more of a comment but my perception of this 
I never used to be a guy that was into class. I was sort of one of these normies that thought, you know, class doesn't exist anymore. All of this stuff is stupid. I mean, I still kind of think that like a little bit, but like um, the, the reaction to the freedom convoy, when you zoom out and see the reaction to sort of populist uprisings, you know, the yellow vests in France and Brexit and around the world and Trump and all that stuff, you, you sort of see this very interesting class divide. And I don't mean by money, but like cultural, educational, and people who live in downtown Ottawa, people who live in large urban centers around the world don't often bump into the people that make those places function. The sort of working class, the, you know, your electrical linemen, your delivery drivers, the guy that hauled your load of lettuce all the way from California or Mexico, you know, um, more often than not sort of working class white guys from the hinterlands who let's be honest, get demonized by the social justice crowd as being problematic or toxic or whatever the fuck. And when when the Freedom Convoy sort of, you know, came to town, there's all these people in Ottawa who the sort of urbanite professional managerial class have been programmed by the media they consume to be told that we're bad guys. So I have to wonder that if that fear was irrational or not. I think that you're onto something with there being a cultural sort of a, a fusion of cultural class divide. Um, I heard the the term laptop class for the first time when I was at the convoy and this idea that, you know, people who were able to transition to work from home, for example, um, and didn't like they experienced the pandemic in a much different way than people who didn't have that option whose jobs don't allow for that. And, and like I think me, that like me who was hauling yeah. propane all the way through the COVID pandemic. And I, I still had to go outside at 25 and 30 below and fill people's propane tanks. So their houses got warm while they hid inside in their pajamas. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, so very, it, it, it was, you know, the pandemic affected everyone, but in drastically different ways. Um, and we're kidding ourselves to suggest that we were all in the same boat, right? We were in maybe no, the same we storm. Were, we we, were, never, we were never in the same boat and it was never, yeah, all of that stuff was lies and BS and I'm not even going to get into it. It's pointless relitigating it. Can we fast forward? How did you come to find out or meet or become associated with Jeremy McKenzie? So uh, I mentioned that, you know, my turning point was July of 2021. Um, for about half a year, I didn't really understand what was going on. Um, and I thought that there were just major misunderstandings or possibly individual spiteful people who were trying to propagate this false narrative about me. Um, and, you know, when I was at the convoy, uh, it was distressing sometimes to have spent like hours and hours outside in the freezing cold. I come back inside, I'm uploading stuff, right? I, I was still working simultaneously. So I'm doing like my law practice and, you know, I'd log on to Twitter and <laughs> it would just be a lot of BS and people lying to me about uh, or lying to new followers or people in my comments trying to dissuade them from engaging with me. Um, and it felt very hopeless because it was me versus this unknown pack of anonymous trolls and 
kind of, I couldn't do anything to control it, right? I, I couldn't control my reputation, even if I was behaving like properly and everything to the best of my abilities. Um, there was this active concerted effort to bring me down. Um, and so I, I. By who? Into it. who? Who are these people trying to bring you down? So that's the million dollar question. Um, and it's still been a work in progress to figure it out. Um, and I've been able to unmask, so to speak, um, many of the people who were behind this. Um, but what constantly kept coming up was an article by the Canadian Anti-Hate Network that was published shortly after my event um, that took my event in, in July. Um, and that article really put me in a negative light. Um, it, it blamed me for this blockade and the fight that ensued. Um, and I, I came to learn that the author of that article, um, you know, was actually participating in that blockade and had been surveilling my unit, like my commercial unit, before I ever announced a show with Chris Sky. So I started putting together that, you know, there's this anti-hate article that came about in sort of a shady way and is being used in uh, as a as a cudgel against me. Um, and as I'm looking into that, uh, I I realize there are other people who have had um, maybe not identical experiences, um, but who feel they've been treated unfairly by that organization. And so I put a call out, um, you know, I, I, for a long time, kind of hoped that it was a misunderstanding. The name itself, you know, anti-hate, you think, okay, that is a good thing. I'm not pro-hate, so anti-hate must be good. Um, and, you know, I, once I was able to get over that mental sort of roadblock, um, and I start talking to people who have had negative experiences, um, patterns emerged. And so Jeremy is uh, one of the individuals I spoke to during that time. Um, you know, we just, I heard him out. Um, I only knew him through media. So I was a bit apprehensive uh, about being in contact. Um, but I, I wanted to get to the bottom of my own situation. And just part of being a lawyer is... Like I talk to all sorts of people all the time um, and I don't have to agree with them or like them or, you know. No, but when you're seeking out the facts to try and build a case or, uh, you know, propagate information an argument. Is neutral. Yeah, information exactly. is neutral, right? And it's what you do with it that counts, but information itself and, and fact finding, I will talk to anyone to get to the bottom of it and triangulate, right? I can't rely on a single source. I want to talk to different people to understand. And then the truth usually lies somewhere in the middle, right? Um, so that's how we initially connected. Um, and basically, we went our separate ways after that. Um, I continued to sort of observe him from afar. He had uh, various legal battles that he was fighting, sort of PR battles that he was fighting. Um, and in... I guess September of 2022, um, he he got 
hauled from Nova Scotia to Saskatchewan on a Canada-wide warrant. Um, and just the way that that unfolded, it's not that it was unheard of, um, but it seemed a little bit out of the norm to me. Um, I have a small practice of, of criminal law. It's not my my main focus, but I know enough to know that it was odd. And and so I decided yeah, to... Can, Canada, Canada-wide warrants are typically reserved for violent criminals who are at risk of you know, killing somebody or are wanted for killing somebody or it, it, it's a very serious, like that, it's know? a serious thing to extend the warrant and to have it executed where you're spending resources um, to bring someone over. Right. Um, and you have to have like, so in, in Canada, we have provinces and the, the leader of the province, um, the premier has to, uh, or actually, I guess it's the attorney general, but like a, a high level government official has to sign off on it. It's not that, you know, your average crown prosecutor can just say, well, I want to bring him over. So let's do that. Right. Um, and especially for the nature of the charges um, that, that were being faced in Saskatchewan. Um, I, I, it just, I, I felt that there was something to the story and I wanted to be there firsthand just to watch the bail hearing um, you know, in addition to my on the ground coverage, um, I attend court proceedings wherever I can to live tweet um, and just uh, as a form of public legal education. Um, so I went to Saskatchewan. The bail hearing was under a publication ban, so I can't talk a lot about what I saw go down. Is it um, still that is that publication ban still extant all these? It's almost a year later. It is a year later. And the charges have since been stayed, which means that the Crown basically abandoned them, um, saying we're not going to pursue this in the interest of justice. Um, Jeremy signed a peace bond, which is essentially an agreement to um, keep the peace for a year. It's uh, a very common resolution where charges are being done away with. It sounds uh, like a redundancy because, you know, I've listened to Jeremy quite a bit and it sounds to me like he just wants to hang out at home and do his thing. and. Um, you know, run yeah, his it, podcast it, and be with his family, um, making him sign some bond just it's it strikes me as a sort of formality. It, it um it's not uncommon to have those where charges are being stayed, kind of so the crown can say, well, at least we have a peace bond, right? Um, but I don't think that there's any real uh, violating a peace bond becomes an offense in itself, but the actual charges, I would be very surprised. Um, if those were ever resuscitated. Um, but the bail hearing, like the the way that it went down and just of an abundance of caution, um, like I won't get into the details, um, but it 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 made me very uncomfortable. Um, and kind of at, at when he got detained and the judge said, you know, well, your bail is denied, basically, um, we kind of made eye contact and he, he probably was a bit... I don't want to speak for him, so I actually don't know what he was thinking. Um, but if I was in his shoes, I would be apprehensive about why I was there because people can't always pin down, you know, what I'm doing places or why. Um, but from that, you know, I, I took a real interest in what was going on with him. Right. And did, you, did you get this feeling and take that interest because it occurred to you that this denial of bail was not based on any actual record of Mr. McKenzie's because as at that time, still no criminal record still doesn't have one. Now 
um, you know, a retired member of the Canadian Armed Forces, perfect service record, model citizen, and now he's being denied bail. Um, much like what happened with the Coots guys who were denied bail. Also, none of those have people having a criminal record. Um, political interference, like, was that crossing your mind? So the, the lack of criminal record in and of itself is not determinative of whether you get bail. Um, in Canada, there are there's like a three-part test that the court will consider um, in whether or not to detain someone. Are they a flight risk? Um, you know, is there a chance that they're going to reoffend? Will letting them out offend like the administration of justice? Um, but you know, I, I I didn't find it compelling, um, and that's not to say that the judge's decision, you know, it it what didn't you find compelling? The 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 fact that he was detained based on the evidence that was presented, um, I was very surprised that he was kept in custody um you know and i I wouldn't want to cast aspersions on the judge to say that it was a political matter i think that um some of the evidence that was led you know would have put him in a bad light um and i can see how you know the decision came about but it's a very serious matter to be kept in pretrial custody especially in a different province um and you know it, it as a the part of me that does criminal law is uh very averse to the carceral system uh, i think that it's only in the most exceptional of circumstances that we should be caging people i don't think that it's a good benefit and Je- and Je- Jer- jeremy's circumstances didn't reach that threshold in your mind no it, and again i'm not the judge but um, you know, I, I have won bail hearings as a lawyer. I've lost bail hearings as a lawyer. Um, and so I, based on my assessment of the process, um, I, I wanted to keep an eye on his case. I, I, right, right. It, so this, this, captured this, me. this is September, 2022. And I think not- the bail hearing might've been October, but he was hauled off in September and then the bail hearing was October, but yeah. Right conveniently conveniently right when the public order emergency commission was supposed to start absolutely um and in fact he was summoned to testify and he ended up being the only person um to testify from a jail cell Uh, he could have refused it would have been like a 400 dollars fine um but uh my understanding is he actually wanted to get his side of the story out i think that I I I i watched his testimony and I have to note that Jeremy shaved, wore a suit, and was uh, very proactive and polite with the judge and struck a perfectly legitimate, normal, upstanding citizen. And, you know, I don't, I don't know how anyone could watch his testimony and then match that with what these guys at CAHN were saying about him or what the media was saying about him or what the government was saying about him. Right. And, and in his testimony, that line he gave about, you know, this is like one of the, you know, monumental intelligence failure in Canadian history. I mean, that struck a chord with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Um, it's interesting because he initially, like his lawyer, um, made an application for him to testify in camera, meaning without media present, and it would have just been the commissioner and the people asking the questions. Um, well, then, so then, then he would have been like CSIS, because I think CSIS were the only people exactly that requested right. that too, right? Yes, and that was granted for national security reasons, um, and Jeremy's request was denied. And and the, the reason or rationale behind it was he wanted to participate, but also didn't want to taint um, you know, his potential trials, right? Um, so it was denied. He decides to testify anyway. Um, and then after the fact, there was very little reporting about it. And that's despite the media kind of um, really fighting against this request to have in-camera testimony. They said, no, the public needs to know, you know, this is a matter of public interest. Um, and then after the fact, there was very little said about it. They've dropped they've dropped Jeremy McKenzie like a hot potato yeah. basically ever since POEC. Yeah. Like he might as well not exist anymore, which is hilarious because prior to that, he was enemy of the state number one. And via the documentation you've just released, um, via this expose you published on Monday, and then this FOIPOP request. It seems like every single uh, police enforcement agency in Canada, RCMP, CSIS, and everyone were expending a great deal of time and taxpayer resources basically trying to throw everything they could at him and came up with nothing. And and I think there's a, a couple of different possible explanations for that. Um, you know, uh, one is tunnel vision basically so once they had this idea in their head that you know diagonal is a militia it's dangerous jeremy is you know spouting off ideology that is going to provoke an extremist things along the, those lines um they looked really hard to find it and when they didn't find it that wasn't taken as evidence of it not existing. They decide they need to look even harder um, and make these interpretations and sort of stretches and reaches that just didn't correspond to reality, but they were trying to prove their own hypothesis. Um, right. Right. Um, can, can, uh, I would like to make a connection here with something that happened during Freedom Convoy and something that's like a deeper problem with the Canadian media and if, if I may, the sort of Canadian psyche in general, such as it exists, right? So this witch hunt for Jeremy and Diagalon, which could include me because I listen to his podcast, and that's basically what it is. Mm -hmm. Anybody, Diagalon is anyone that's a fan of his, right? So um, the, the, the our ruling class especially the sort of center left side of it and other elements around that have kind of memed themselves into believing that there's fascists and Nazis and white nationalists and all these boogeymen hiding around every corner and um, January 6th protests in Washington DC were a template for this. And Oh my God, we have a J six situation coming to Canada. People I talk to in my own family, people I've spoken with, like in my sort of extended friend network to this day, still believe that the problem with Canadian politics is that we're importing Trumpism and all this racial animus and stuff. And the actual only evidence of that is those people talking about it. 
mm-hmm. because none of this stuff is actually going on, right? And then during Freedom Convoy, you know, as released in POEC, there's all this uh, discussion going on with Mendocino and his people, and they're basically trying to meme January 6th North into reality, right? Trudeau skips town, goes to some chalet in Quebec somewhere. You know, he's afraid he's going to experience violence. They wanted violence to happen. They wanted the Freedom Convoy to be violent. The Freedom Convoy did not deliver. No violence, nothing. They wanted Jeremy McKenzie to be this guy that was violent and an extremist, and nothing of the sort happened, right? There's a there's a book. Have you ever heard of a book called Hate Crime Hoaxes? There's a gentleman here in the United States who published this book a couple of years ago. He's an African-American guy, and he teaches at a university in Kentucky. I think his name is Wilfred Riley. And he documents literally hundreds of supposed hate crimes that get re- reported in the media with all the opprobrium about, oh, you know, white nationalism. This person was robbed. This person was, like, beat up by the cops. And then when you investigate all of these cases, it turns out that it was a lie or misinformation or misconstrued or used to gain attention on the part of the person that resolved it. And like, there's hundreds of them. This guy's book is like yay thick and he publishes it. Nobody outside of a very small portion of the media will talk to him because the facts he lays out in this book belie the sort of narrative we're told that there's all of these white nationalists running around looking to overthrow the government, right? So we we have, and in Canada, you know, we are always, the Canadian cultural zeitgeist, psyche, whatever you want to call it, is always looking south. We're always comparing ourselves. We are either not the Americans or we look to the Americans for some kind of validation or affirmation, depending on the issue, right? And like, it, it almost feels... Like the Canadian establishment and the Canadian media want these boogeymen to be real. They want to have the same thing going on as the Americans have because, you know, we want to feel like we're part of the American social justice movement and we're going to do good by the oppressed, except it's vaporware. There's nothing to it, right? Like, do do you see what I'm saying? I do. Uh, I think that a huge issue um, that we have in Canada is importing what we perceive in the states and despite the differences in historical and cultural context kind of copy pasting it to our reality um and it it does a disservice because there are genuine issues to address for example right now um presently um there's a trial happening in london ontario Um, where a man mowed down with his vehicle uh, a Muslim family that was just out having a stroll. And in the course of his trial, um, you know, there's evidence that this was intentional. It was an actual hate crime. He targeted them because they were Muslim. And when we are expending so much energy and resources looking for boogeymen that don't exist, we're missing those the actual, actual crimes. problems, right? right? Yeah. And, you know, on the subject of hate crime hoax, um, in June of this summer, um, you know, there was controversy surrounding uh, a member of provincial parliament who attended a protest 
who claimed that he was punched in the face by a protester. Um, I happened to have footage that showed his megaphone uh, hitting his own face um, with no one else around him in exactly that same spot. Um, it's not conclusive or determinative of anything, um, but nobody has any evidence whatsoever of this punch taking place. And the story kind of shifted where he added extra details that correspond to an event that did happen. But if you review footage from that, he's nowhere to be seen. So, and this is something that it, it ought to be, in my view, um, like rigorously pursued because to invent something like that or to misrepresent the situation, um, it means that you're putting a target on a, a group of protesters who didn't actually do what you say they did, right? If we can just trade in facts and truth rather than hyperbole, hyperbole yeah. right? But um, there, it, it's a lot easier and faster um, and safer to do hyperboles instead, right? right. And, and so those shortcuts- uh, there's, a, there's a market for hyperbole. It gets you social credit. It gets you opprobrium, right? Yep. Yeah. And and so you just used a very interesting term, you know, painting targets on people. I mean, uh, if anyone in Canada has had a target put on his back, it's Jeremy McKenzie. Yes. Uh, something that was referred to in the report is the fact that um, when he was in remand in Saskatoon, um, he like nearly got stabbed by a group of people who took him to be a white nationalist based on what they heard said about him on TV. So, you know, it has real, real consequences. Right. So um, th this report, so uh, th this FOIPOP can for, for I'll have, I have a lot of American and like international listeners. Can you describe the term FOIPOP, um, who filed it, how it is you came to uh, take all those documents and like how much work you've put into going through them and sort of what it all means and then how you came to write this expose? Um, so a FOIPOP is a freedom of information request. And um, in Canada, we have this legislation where if the federal government is, um, you know, collecting information, um, Basically, we're entitled to access it. And there are redactions that might take place for privacy purposes or national security, um, different criteria where they, they block stuff out. Um, but basically, as citizens, um, it's recognized that information is crucial to a healthy democracy. Um, so the FOIPOP process, um, it involved... Um, someone, a, a, a friend or follower or fan of Jeremy's um, submitting a request saying, you know, I want, um, I, I believe the language was something to the effect of any reports, communications, emails, etc. about Diagolon or the militia of Diagolon from this period until that period. Um, and it took about a year for the documents to come through and be provided. Um, it was just over a thousand pages, a couple like 1200 or something like that um and I, I like they i was approached um to say we have this information um do you want to take a look at it and a crack at it and you know i, I think that's because i have 
worked at building a reputation of being impartial and fair. Um, and so I was very privileged to have that opportunity. Um, and Elisa Hadigan and I, um, and she, you know, is not, it, like, deserves so much credit for the hours um, that were put in. Um, you know, we poured over the documents. Um, we did sort of breakdowns of what was included in the different packages um, and then tried to make sense of, well, how do we synthesize this and, you know, share the information in a way that is digestible um, and that people will understand. And um, she's had her own experiences with the anti-hate network and the people um, who are fundamental or, or behind that organization. So, you know, her, Jeremy and I, um, our, our stories intersect in kind of unexpected or unusual ways. Uh, and, and rather than produce a cut and dry, um, you know, this is what it said on this page, and this is what happened here. Um, we, we tried to make it accessible by weaving in our stories and, you know, the bigger picture, the, the theme of government, law enforcement, media, being in a feedback loop and taking their information from a single source and not properly verifying it. Right. Um, so, well, there, so there, there, yeah. Yeah. There's a sort of nexus you described where all of these uh, groups and institutions meet mm -hmm. and, and that feedback loop, I think uh, is partially fed off of what we just described, right? Like, you know, this book hate crime hoaxes because, you know, there's, there's a market, you know, people want there to be these boogeymen, right? So uh, Canadian Anti-Hate Network, who, as you've documented, and as is fairly well known in Canada to people paying attention, they get money from the taxpayer, right? Directly from the feds, and then they become advisors to the feds. So it sort of acts as, it's, it's this weird dynamic where, you know, the market for all of these boogeymen is being filled by an activist network who are being paid by the government to produce them. So they're being incentivized to come up with the boogeymen, whether they exist or not. Right. And the, the, the story you told about Elise Hadigan is incredible and provides some real interesting context for the kind of people the Canadian anti-hate network are and how they treated a woman who exposed legitimate, literal, real, violent neo-nazis back in the 90s and then how they spun everything around and then started accusing her of being one after she helped those actors have these people prosecuted and dealt with by the law and the real twist in her story um and and this relates to a group called the heritage front uh, which is widely recognized as canada's most dangerous neo-nazi group that was you know that's not an exaggeration to use that term that was their ideology that's what they you know promoted and propagated um they're linked to acts of extreme violence fire bombings um beatings um murders right very serious stuff um harassment campaigns against activists and it turns out that the co-founder of that group the entire time was a CSIS agent. 
And his involvement in that and the way that he was very hands-on in directing this violence and encouraging civilians to commit crimes, you know, it, it didn't produce anything uh, out of that operation, right? It, it, there was no results that, that came about. Um, it was just sort of this, this chaos agent. Um, and Elisa didn't realize at the time what she was exposing, um, but her affidavits and testimony um, ended up kind of shedding light on the fact that this guy was uh, a spy the whole time. Um, and he manages to get witness protection, you know, is relocated, um, continues to have a salary, all of that fun stuff. Um, and she was left to the streets. So it, it really is like a disgusting example of the state and how it will protect its own and not actually reward people who are doing the right thing, but try to punish them. Yeah, her story is really, really crazy. And I think more people should know about it. And I'm glad you guys published this expose. But getting back to our friends at the Canadian Anti-Hate Network, um, so they are in consultation with the feds, with RCMP, with CSIS. They're providing all these reports on uh, Diagalon. And then um, Trudeau, uh, in response to the Freedom Convoy, starts talking about invoking the Emergencies Act. And I want you to describe for us what you think um, maybe not a percentage, but like how much of a role did the con reports play and the sort of subsequent fear mongering around Diagalon? Because as we should remember, you know, we had people in the House of Commons referencing these reports, you know, and in the Senate, they're going, you know, Diagalon's this white extremist group and they're going to they're armed and they're going to overthrow the government. And, you know, they're saying this stuff with a straight face, even though all of it is a hundred percent total BS. Mm -hmm. So like, can you, can you get us to that point? Sure. Um, so I'll start by saying that we don't know the precise nature of discussions between the anti-hate network and RCMP or CSIS. Um, and that's for two reasons. One, there were redactions. Um, so there's stuff that we simply just don't have access to um, at this point and may never have access to. Um, and second, like the law enforcement, they talked about open source information, um, which could be Google searches, right? So the Anti-Hate Network, they have their website, they're publishing their stuff, they're giving quotes to media, um, RCMP are looking up these news stories or looking up uh, Anti-Hate's website. Um, so we don't know precisely what was told versus what was gleaned from publicly available information. What we do know is that the way that Anti-Hate um, reported on Diagalon and, and Jeremy um, was, was misleading, um, right? And that's maybe to the, say most the generous, least. most generous characterization I can make um, is that it was misleading. Um, and, you know, the least charitable is, uh, you know, we talk about disinformation and, and that's kind of when you're cherry picking or misrepresenting, um, ultimately that's what, what you're providing. Um, so, you know, the fact that law enforcement relied on this, um, then produced their own reports, 
uh, members of parliament, the prime minister are looking at it. They're sort of taking in this information. I, I think, um, and this is um, something that, that Jeremy has expressed, um, you know, Trudeau's job isn't to be on the ground with a magnifying glass figuring out who's doing what, right? Like he has law enforcement and his public safety minister, and it's their role to triage and identify threats. And so if he is taking at face value the information that he's being given to by them, which is sort of what you would expect from a leader, um, and then making decisions based on that information, it's... That's uh, in that's in theory, though. Our prime minister is a special case. Um, shiny hair, rainbow socks. I support the oppressed of the world. Uh, social justice fucking windbag that he is. And I choose my words very carefully because that's exactly what he is. So when somebody like Canadian Anti-Hate Network is coming along and saying things that are within that sphere and within that world and within that um, uh, sort of milieu and ideological proclivity that the prime minister already shares, how do we know that he's going to be skeptical of this stuff? And how do we know that the people working for him in his cabinet and all of their underlings are going to be skeptical when they're all basically sniffing the same farts? There may be a level of confirmation bias, which I think is probably the best way to describe that, right? Where, you know, they're looking for something and if someone tells them we found it, you're more inclined to believe that versus no, there's no problem here. Um, ultimately, there's still a chain of command. So if we sort of take that at face value, um, or, you know, we say that it's more hands on it, either way, at the end of the day, the information that was being relied upon um, was shifty, right? And so and there were people, there were people within RCMP and CSIS who were pushing back on the stuff Khan was feeding, right? Like they're like, very where's the people, evidence? Very few, um, but it did exist. So you're right. Um, there are still, you know, honest officers out there saying, hang on, everything points back to one source. H how can we triangulate this information, right? We need more to, to actually move on this or there's no hard evidence or why aren't we accepting the explanation of sort of humor and sarcasm um so there were a couple of officers um you know to what extent were their voices drowned out by others who were caught up in the hype um obviously the emergencies act happened um now you know, to what percentage of it relied on on that is very hard to say because um, there were different reasons. And, and a big reason was, you know, oh, sorry, I have some angry cats. Just a sec. <laughs> angry cats or angry trucker. Take your back. Sorry about that. Um, yeah. So, you know, th there was the fact that there were trucks on Wellington Street that weren't moving and no towing companies that were prepared to do it. Um, were there other tools that could have been utilized? Probably. Um, what about what about actually talking to the Freedom Convoy or its sort of uh, leadership such as it was? If I'm putting myself in the shoes of the prime minister, there are two barriers, I think, that prevented that. Um, the first being 
Cowardice? (laughs) The first being kind of lack of clarity on who is actually the leader and to what extent the leaders had control over anyone. And that's an issue that's being raised in Tamara Leach and uh, Chris Barber's trial right now that like, hey, we can't control everyone. We can just sort of be role models or figures or make suggestions. So that's one, one hurdle to it. And the second is, you know, a, a lot of the rhetoric um, uh, was very, we've used the word hyperbole in a different context, but there was hyperbolic political rhetoric as well that that had hints of political violence. Now, was there actual threat? I don't know. But, you know, there were people with like violent imagery and even the notion of the fuck Trudeau flag, um, which is a permissible form of of protest and expression, um, but obviously a hostile one as well. So was he like excited to talk to these people? Obviously not. He well, I mean, I mean, the, 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 the discussion around those <laughs> flags and you get the same thing here in the U.S., you know, the F Biden or F Trump or whatever, you know, there's this sort of a devolution of um, political discourse and messaging, as it were. And I, and I get it. I don't like to see that stuff. Kids don't need to see it. However, the, the the arguments against that are like used as a cudgel, right? Like we have to maintain respectability politics. However, the grievances that the freedom convoy embodied for the millions of people who supported it, mm-hmm. um, how, you know, how respectable was it to impose an apartheid system on Canada where people couldn't fly, people couldn't leave the country, People couldn't access public transport. People couldn't go to the hospital, see their loved ones based on a ginned up moral panic around a virus that didn't cause any problems for like 99.97% of the population. And, you know, an interesting point on the respectability politics. The first time I ever recall seeing like a fuck politician sign was during the reign of Stephen Harper. Um, so, and that, that was the prime minister who preceded Justin Trudeau, a conservative prime minister. Um, so, you know, it's interesting that that sort of shift when the shoe was on the other foot, it's not as pleasant. Well, no, exactly. It's it's Schmidtian politics. Who, whom friend enemy distinction, right? And, you know, it's a very, it's a reason that, um, if I can tie it back to sort of the expose, Um, It's a reason that even though, you know, my politics are irrelevant to what was discussed in there, because what matters is the state and how it relates to people and how the apparatus of the state can be used to crush dissent. And if it happens to this guy, it can happen to you. That's right. And that's something that people lose sight of, um, especially where the target is someone they don't like, is unpopular, you know, maybe they find him to be an asshole, maybe he, like, and none of those things are illegal, though, right? right? Yeah, well, it's Orwell's object of 10 minutes hate, right? Except with Jeremy McKenzie, it was more like 10 months. And, you know, it, it, uh, yeah, it's not healthy, I don't think. Um, And it, it creates this like it normalizes processes that 
when the political winds shift and inevitably they do right no no rule lasts forever otherwise that's actually totalitarian um and so when the political winds shift you know it, it like that that's what concerns me a great deal and that's why i you know even if it's not a popular thing to say, it needs to be said and more people need to say it and think about it and think about how they themselves contribute to, you know, this, this cycle, right? In, in the ways that they engage in political discourse and are they thoughtful, you know, or are we conscientious? And it's very hard to push for that in our 24 hour news cycle world where, you know, we're dehumanizing each other on social media. Um, so, you know, it, it, but it, it's so. It's also very important. hard. It's also very hard to do that after the last three years of, you know, uh, corrosive psychological warfare employed by our professional managerial elite and this sort of international cabal of, corporations and governments that wanted to shut society down and accepted no dissent interfered with the free flow of information to prevent people from making up their own minds, imposing mandates on them. So like, it's all well and good to, to you try know, though, Like there, there's countries that go through literal genocide, right? And then the, then it's over and then fuck, we all still have to live with each other. Right. How, how do we, do that justice? How, like, is it a commission? Is it an inquiry? Are there going to be trials? You know, is it nothing? And we all just move forward. Like there's no fixed answer and different countries have done it in different ways. Um, but I, I bring that up because, you know, it, it for everything that it was and not to downplay anyone's experience or, you know, but it, it also, we're fortunate that there was an actual, you know, machetes in the streets, right? No, we, we, so we, we're capable, we are, we're we capable are of moving past. Sure, we're capable we're, of, of living together still. Sure, yes. I, I believe that as well. And I think one of the keys to getting past it and moving past it is accountability of everybody involved. What that looks like, I don't know, but I want to mm -hmm. see it. I want to mm -hmm. bring back, I want to bring it back to something you just mentioned, which is um uh, sort of political winds shifting. Um, your expose here and the, and the release of all these documents under that Foy pop request that show, you know, th this went seriously deep, right? Like th this got up to the level of five eyes, other governments like being alerted about Jeremy and then asking for information, which is amazing for like a, 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 a domestic case involving a podcaster, right? And uh, do, do you feel any winds are are shifting now that this uh, th this expose of yours has been released? Like, what, what, do you get a sense that anything is going to move now back home in Canada? It's still a bit early. Um, and, you know, the fact that media is heavily involved um, is also Implica impl implicated, implicated is a good word. Implicated, complicit, um, you know, th that is is going to probably make everyone a bit reluctant to be the first to touch this right not um, me uh, <laughs> how many podcasts have you been on since the expose came out you might actually be the first um i have a few that are lined up 
Um, so my, like the most I can do is talk to as many people, um, you know, across the spectrum and just share what I've learned and, you know, what it says and what it doesn't say, because I, I don't want it to be itself a source of misinformation. Um, but, you know, it may involve like something outside of Canada. Um, oh, I'm working on that. <laughs> right. So that's kind of, that's how it happens. Right. I, I, I think that we have to sort of shame our institutions into action. If they can sweep it under the rug, they will. Um, and, and I personally don't plan on letting this go. Good. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I appreciate the effort you've put in to examining all these documents and putting out the expose, I think, as Jeremy calls it. That brings me to another question. Um, shaming. Um, there's a connection here with the situation in Alberta with these, what I call, and many people refer to as political prisoners, these four men who have been in remand custody since being arrested uh, or in or nearby the Coots protest site. And the connection tenuous as it is with Diagalon, I've spoken with a lot of people involved at Coots the diagonal thing, the Jeremy thing is kind of a minor part of it. There's other factors going on there, but insofar as the diagonal thing relates to what happened in Coots, do you have a sense in reviewing these documents that this uh, witch hunt and wild goose chase looking for, you know, the white nationalist extremist organization diagonal um, influenced the RCMP to take the actions it did in Coots and then impose this dragnet and arrest these men? I think it actually was the reverse. Um, so I, I don't have a full grasp on the facts or situation of Coots. So I'm fairly limited in the commentary I can provide on that. Um, I understand that there was an undercover um, officer involved in this whole debacle. Two. Uh, and so that to me raises questions about, you know, uh, the, the first thing that comes to mind is, is was entrapment part of this? To what degree were they participating? Were they simply observing? Was this happening without them? And I don't have the answer to any of those questions. Um, but the way that Coots um, connects to Jeremy um, or Diagalon was through what appeared to be homemade patches on one of the uh, sort of tactical vests. Um, and it's it, very, in, it's interesting that there was this emphasis on on the Diagalon patches specifically because other patches were found as well. And that's not something that was really featured or talked about on the news. Um, exclusively, we heard about the Diagalon patches. Um, huh, and, interesting. And, and we heard about you know, Jeremy meeting with, um, I, I believe it's Chris Lysak, um, on a couple of occasions. And these photographs were sort of taken as, well, look, here's proof that they have a deep connection. Um, and yet in a world where we have our camera phones in our pocket, you know, it, it's nothing to have a picture taken with someone, especially if they're a fan of your podcast. Right. So no, the, 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 the lack of evidence about any of this connection is astounding. All they have is the barbecue that Lysak showed up at in Saskatchewan 
way before Freedom Convoy ever happened. The other three men have zero connection to Jeremy McKenzie. Most of them have never even heard of the guy. So the the connection made by Khan, made by the media, like there ha- the there has to be some blame assigned here, at least to the s- sort of um the the sense of urgency on the part of the RCMP or other actors to produce evidence to validate the witch hunt. And a, a factor in that, and this is something we discuss um, in, in the expose, is that um, Marco Mendicino, who was the Minister of Public Safety at the time, um, made statements about you know, people in Ottawa having strong connections to the men arrested in Coots. And he was presumably referring to Jeremy and the RCMP received media requests asking for clarification on this. And they then were essentially scrambling to come up with an explanation to back up the public um, safety minister's commentary. So it was very ass backwards in that sense, where he wasn't really relying on their intel. They had to, you know, feed an answer to the media based on what he said. Um, and as far as I'm aware, um, you know, it, it, it was news outlets quoting the anti-hate network saying, look, there's these two patches. Um, so, you know, th- that uh, is indicative of kind of the, the 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 desire to kind of create a narrative or bolster a narrative even if it didn't actually fit right um fit the facts and and, and that that's not the role of law enforcement and and that was disappointing to see right yeah well it's also disappointing for the children and partners and relatives of these four men you know, I spoke with Jerry Morin. He has not seen his children in 19 months. Uh, he only recently saw his life partner uh, last weekend. Calgary Reband Center, for whatever reason, wouldn't let uh, Jacqueline go see him. There's just the, the unbelievably abominable treatment of these four guys who have literally no criminal records. But none of them really knew each other before Coots. You know, one guy only sort of went there kind of on on the fly, and now the full weight of the state has come against them, denied bail for ridiculous reasons, and it seems like you know one of the only one one of the main things going on here is this witch hunt around Diagalon, and you know it it seems to anybody looking at this from the outside that these Canadian anti hate network people have basically ruin the lives of these four guys over nothing. You know, it, it uh, I mean, you don't have you, to have, you, you don't, you, you don't have to have a comment on that. This is me. No, it, editorializing, it's, you can't get but, back time, right? You can't get back time. Um, and the stigma of criminal charges and, you know, it, it's a meat grinder, our institutions, uh, like our federal or provincial, like, prison or, or uh, jail institutions. So yeah, it, it's, it's such a, a waste of human life and energy. And it's very distressing to think about that. Right. I'm going to ask you one last question here and then I'm going to let you go. You've been very gracious with your time 
and I appreciate all of your excellent answers to my inquiries here. In reviewing these documents from the FOIPOP uh, release, how high up in our government does the sort of influence of Khan go? And if in the after all of this comes out in the wash at some point in the near future, hopefully, maybe there's an inquest, maybe there's some accountability, some mechanism which investigates everything that went on here. Because as you say, it shouldn't be swept under the rug. Something has to happen here. Do you believe that like under uh, under normal circumstances, if we had a media that wasn't bought and paid for by Trudeau, if we didn't have uh, political culture informed by the last three years of psychological warfare under the COVID regime, if we had sort of quote unquote normal circumstances, and if in fact some kind of inquest took place into what went on here, how far up the food chain are heads going to roll? It's very hard to answer that um, only because I don't know. Um, you know, there are people who were former men me members of the anti-hate network who have now positions in government. There are board members um, actively who, um, you know, are, are, are closely connected. Um, to but, who? Uh, to the, to the ruling party, to the liberal party um, who sit on um, sort of committees, I, I guess is maybe the right term. Um, so there's proximity there, um, but I would be remiss if I kind of took a guess. I, I honestly don't know. It could go all the way up or it could be, um, like I alluded to earlier, uh, more of a chain of command issue and, you know, the information then sort of guts filtered upwards with no regard for where it actually comes from. Um, so it, it remains to be seen. And I think that there will be more foy pops to come because this one was very specific to the question of diagonal. Um, and so there's different ways to formulate questions that will produce different documents. Awesome. I look forward to hearing about those and seeing your analysis of them. Um, do you have anything else to add or do you think there's anything else my listeners should know about this case or what's going on in a wider sense in Canada now? Um, I, I think, you know, and, and part of uh, what I tried to convey um, is just the importance of critical thinking. And, you know, that means getting information from different sources and weighing and assessing it and figuring out who you trust. Um, and, you know, that's like, it's, it's very easy to be lazy about that in our current landscape. And I encourage people to fight that urge and, and to be thirsty for knowledge. Right. I lied. I have one more question. Should there be any kind of inquest or demand for answers about this, though I doubt it, considering the Conservative Party in Canada are functionally useless and not much of an opposition, on the assumption that there is, um, it's going to be hard to relitigate the Public Order Emergency Commission or Justice mm -hmm. Rouleau's ruling, mm -hmm. but his ruling, you know, it, it, it came down 
And he said, you know, I reluctantly agree that Trudeau is within his right to invoke the Emergency Act, Measures Act. However, that was based on all of this stuff in coots centered around Diagalon, centered around this staged photo of all these guns, most of which didn't belong to the guys that got arrested. Um, and, you know, the patches, these flags and Rouleau basically having what is now being proven to be either legitimately faulty information, disinformation, misinformation, or just ginned up pure BS. Is there any way to, do you think there's any possibility in having some kind of like, I don't know if you can overturn that ruling or revisit it or anything. Like, is there any possibility to get closure on this, given that his ruling is now basically bunkum? I think it'll be very hard to relitigate those findings. Um, and part of the recommendations, if I'm not mistaken, um, were to extend the timeline for the process because it all happened in fairly short order. There were strict deadlines about how quickly it needed to happen. And so that means that there's aspects of the truth finding function that are limited. Right. Um, so I, I, I don't know that there will be formal closure necessarily. I think that there would be, there'd have to be more that comes out in order to even remotely justify that. So I, I don't know that we're there yet. Um, and this is where media and if not legacy media, then independent media um, can play a role in bringing facts to the public's attention. Um, what the consequences of those findings will be. Um, I, I don't foresee a formal process, um, but you know, it, it can and perhaps should uh, affect certain careers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. F&A to that. Um, although I have very little confidence in uh, the Canadian fourth estate um, or what little of it that remains that's actually, you know, continuing what the mandate they're supposed to have. Anyway, um, Karim Assad, thank you very much uh, for joining Voice of Gord. Um, where can people find you and how can they follow the sort of ongoing saga? Um, I'm primarily on Twitter, which, you know, I, I'll I'll go down with the ship. Um, my handle is Karima Rules. That's C-A-R-Y-M-A-R-U-L-E-S. Um, elsewhere, you can find me Karima Saad, or if you Google Sad Lawyer Toronto. Um, and uh, to follow along with this story, check out HateGate, H-A-T-E-G-A-T-E dot -E C-A or the hashtag HateGate. Awesome. And you publish somewhat frequently at a place called Cryer Media too, correct? That's correct. All right. Well, I'll have all the links to that in the show notes. Um, Ms. Saad, thank you so much for joining me. This has been very illuminating. I really appreciate your time and, and, and your um, you know very articulate responses to my questions. Thank you so much. Have a great one. All right. Way of the road. <laughs>